You know, there for a few moments, I was taken back. I, I don't know that I've heard that kind of expression in singing. Maybe it's just my ears are hearing better today. But it just seemed like just not not just the the volume was that, but the spirit in which that we were singing that last scripture song, Isaiah nine six. It took me back to years and years and years ago. Uh, being in this um, assembly before many of you were here. And that was, I felt that, okay, I felt that kind of spirit there. And it was an encouragement to my soul. I'm going to be reading from Luke, Luke chapter 1 and then Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, I'll read down through verse 35. Now, in the sixth month, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. This is just absolutely phenomenal. That this actually happened. There's actually a person that's being spoken to. There's actually going to be experiencing this. He will be great. That's the human side. Even more marvelous is the divine side. That this would be happening. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. The angel answered and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Chapter two. The son has been born. Pick up the reading in verse eight. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, 
which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, a Deliverer, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is Christ the Lord. This is the Savior. This is the Deliverer. You'll find Him in a manger. I'm not going to be emphasizing that in the message, but it, 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 it demands some meditation, actually. There was no place for Him. There wasn't a crib, a cradle. This isn't... The things you see today, it's kind of like the gold cross hanging around the neck. It's sanitized. That's not what was going on here. It stunk. We're talking about humiliation here. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Just, what's going on here? And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So many things that could be said this morning and when putting putting together thoughts for a message, that's the hardest thing in the world to do for a preacher. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to, to work with me, to bear with me. I'm going to, I'm not gonna be jumping to the punchlines. Okay? At least I'm gonna try not to. And in some ways, that's my method of preaching. I think some of you know that. Uh, it builds to something. But I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to, to, to stay with me. And, and hopefully, we'll get to a place, perhaps even along the way, I'll have to bridle myself, but we'll get to a place where there will be, I trust, a movement in your soul. Just like there was in the, do angels have souls? Not the same way we do, but they're living beings. The incarnation is what, one, is what I want to talk about today. The incarnation matters. It really matters. The incarnation is very simply put, the word became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. But those simple statements of revelation are profound realities that are both mind-boggling and glorious. And it really doesn't matter what we teach and believe concerning Jesus Christ. You see, there's a lot, there's lots of folks who will say, who will speak of Jesus. They will even celebrate. And I'm not talking about those who would call themselves, whom we would view as Christ, part of the Christian camp. 
I'm talking about those who are even part of cult camps who will celebrate some of the same things you celebrate. Or if they don't celebrate, they will refer to Jesus just like you do. But it is not the same Jesus. How important is this? Well, John would say this. Second John 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for and that we may receive a full reward. And this seems to have a a, a direct connection to your thoughts and your relationship to who this Jesus Christ is. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. That's how serious this is. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And then back in 1 John, familiar words to many, but not to all. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, the amazing mystery of the incarnation is not simply that an impossible conception occurred. Impossible conceptions had already occurred. You remember the angel actually used this to encourage Mary. In chapter one of Luke, he goes on to say now indeed, or it goes on to say now indeed Elizabeth, he, The angel goes on to say, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is is now the sixth month for her who was called barren for with God. Nothing will be impossible. How, How can this be? Was the question Mary asked. The answer ultimately is with God, nothing is impossible. The amazing mystery. Is God. Manifest in the flesh. The amazing mystery is the eternal word made flesh. The one conceived in the virgin's womb was truly God and truly man. Now, I speak today with the awareness that I'm speaking of the father's only begotten son. Believe me when I tell you this has affected me. Because there are multiple ideas that have been floated out throughout the history of Christianity about who he is. And they still exist to this day. And I want to say what has been revealed. Even if I don't fully understand it. And brethren, I do not fully understand it. I have said before, and I still contend this, that I believe Who Jesus is from conception forward 
is a more difficult idea to grasp. And some of the questions that are stirred up because of it are more difficult to answer, in my mind, than even the Trinity. This is not a simple subject. But I want to believe the record that God has given of His Son. And I call upon you to join me in that. Because this doctrine matters. The incarnation matters. Now, in this message, I'm not going to defend from Scripture the deity and humanity of Jesus the Christ. I'm going to assume that you, you believe that. I'm going to assume that you accept that. My interest today is to consider with you that the one who was conceived in the womb of Mary is the one who lived, died, arose, and is today at the right hand of the Father. Now, that's profound. It's more profound than what you are thinking even right now or that I am thinking even right now. So profound that we should probably spend the rest of our lives looking into that. That's part of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul summarized it this way. Some have said this is an early Christian hymn, perhaps so. All I know is it's the Word of God. And this is how he summarized it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. We can all agree on that. And what is that? God was manifest in the flesh. I know some of the translations will say He was manifest in the flesh. In some ways, what I would say to you is this. God was manifest in the flesh. But it wasn't God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was God the Son. It was He who was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the Spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up in glory. From cradle to crown. Received up into glory. Manifest in the flesh. Received up into glory. The incarnation is truly good tidings of great joy to all people. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy refers to God as unapproachable light. Think about that unapproachable light came into the world. Veiled to reveal. Veiled to unveil. What we otherwise could not see. We could see shadows and we could see parts But brethren, He is the answer. I'm talking about the Word became flesh is the answer to Moses' prayer. What was Moses' prayer? Show me your glory. And in the fullness of time, God answered that prayer. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
that He might redeem those who were under the law. And so that John could say that in Him we see, we saw, we see, we saw the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so today, I want to explain to you this doctrine and then I want to close by telling you, at least pointing out several reasons why it is so important. Okay? So that's the path we're taking here. There's questions and there are depths to this subject that I will not address in this message. So if you have questions that come to your mind, I I, I mean, it'd be good if you wrote them down perhaps. Or maybe try to push those questions aside for the time being, because sometimes that can distract you from the flow of thought. I'm I'm, I'm moving somewhere here. But let's explain the doctrine, or at least I'm going to try to. We must always remember that the Son of God, the Word, had no beginning. We read that in John chapter 1, didn't we? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. One of the hymns we just sang said, Word of the Father. Did y'all notice that? Sometimes we can get so hung up on some things in our minds we're not really seeing or hearing what's being said in some of the hymns. Word of the Father. He's always been that. The expression, as has been expressed recently, the outgoing. The Word of the Father. He has always been the only begotten of the Father, eternally from Him and one in essence with Him. He is God. Isaiah, we sang it, prophesied over 700 years before the incarnation. He prophesied unto us a son is born. How come no one's objecting? That's a huge mistake I just made. It wasn't a, it was an intentional mistake. No! Unto us a son is given. Given. He exists eternally. He's Jehovah's son. And Jehovah's son is the El Gibor. He's the mighty God. The everlasting Father. As Jesus said to His disciples, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Over and over, Jesus the Son confirms that He was sent by the Father. In fact, at least 32 times in the Gospel of John, you'll see Him... He's test, you want to know who Jesus understood himself to be? Read the Gospels. Read the Gospel of John. 
And in John 17, verses 3 through 5, praying to his Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. And it was going to require the cross to get to the answer to this prayer. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This this is, he is not, he had no beginning. You know that. He came into the world to fulfill the will of his Father. John 6, verses 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You're hearing this. The Father sent his Son, the Son, Willingly came. This is the eternal, the outworking of the eternal mind, the eternal covenant of God, the intention, the purpose of God. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now, his coming from the Father in the fullness of time was unlike any previous Appearance. And by the way, I'm going to try to stick real close here to my notes here because at any point I can feel myself launching off into, into some other thought. So please bear with me as I seek to stay bound here without being bound, I hope. So his coming from the Father in the fullness of time was unlike any previous appearance. What do I mean by that? Well, the Son of God, the eternal Word, has always been the expression of God, right? Word of the Father. God, who is invisible, was seen before the incarnation. He was seen in various visible forms. The burning bush. The, the man who, one of, the man who appeared um, to Abraham, remember before Sodom and Gomorrah. What about that one that was uh, in the with the three Hebrew children in the burning fiery furnace? And, and there are other examples. He's the messenger of the covenant. And by the way, that word messenger of the covenant is the word angel. And so that's seen many times, a number of times in the Old Testament. These were appearances of Yahweh. I believe they were pre-incarnate appearances, but he did not take on human nature until he was conceived in a woman. That's why Isaiah prophesied that unto us a child is born. A son is given, a child is born, and brethren, here is where we meet the mystery. And faith engages to believe what is unbelievable, certainly incomprehensible. J.C. Ryle said of the incarnation, it needs to be carefully stated. Hence, my attempt to stick closely to what I have worked through and put down. It needs to be carefully stated. It is just one of those great truths which are not meant to be curiously pried into, but to be reverently believed. 
That's where Psalm 131 helps. There are some things that are too lofty, too high. We need to know where the line is to be drawn. The incarnation then was the result of the work of the triune God by which the Son, not the Father or the Spirit, assumed a complete human nature without causing any change to His divine nature. Got that? In the womb of Mary, the Word became flesh. A perfect man, body and soul, is what is meant by flesh. Certainly not sinful flesh. You know the word flesh is used in a number of different ways. But it's, it is representing that conscious soul and that physical body has now prepared for me. God doesn't have a body. Man does. And so the man, Christ Jesus. Now keep this in mind. In the beginning, God made man in his own image. That was a perfect image. God made man in his own image. Perfection. Knowing that he would, in the fullness of time, take on that image to restore what sin, to restore what sin destroyed in that image. Hence, we have the second Adam. Hang on to that. We'll return to that later. As in all aspects of our salvation, the triune God participated in the incarnation. You saw that, I hope, in in Luke chapter 1. If you're still there, you can look at it in verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. We're saying the triune God is involved. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. The word overshadow there is used about five times in the New Testament. Three of those times, it is in reference to the transfiguration. And what happened at the transfiguration? A cloud overshadowed and a voice came forth. The Father's voice came forth. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see what's going on here? This shadow, the overshadowing, this is the participation of the Father as well as the Holy Spirit in the very conception of the Son. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Of course, the idea of the word overshadow also, it implies secrecy. Something occurring that's not fully explained. But really did happen. And so you have all kinds of questions that are asked about the conception. What really went on? And how did it really happen? And, and the fact of the matter is, brethren, we need to come to a place where we say, I don't know, but this I do know. Because it's revealed. And I think the idea of the word overshadowed is there was like a, a curtain that was drawn. It's kind of like when Christ was on the cross, darkness fell upon the face of the earth. Why? Something was going on there. The curtains were pulled. There was something deep. 
and mysterious and powerful going on. So in the, in the virgin's womb, we don't need to press in beyond what's revealed. But note this, the Son of God was in the womb of Mary. The Son of God was in the womb of Mary. She was not the mother of God in the sense of his deity, but she was the mother of the God man. In that she conceived and bore the person who is Christ the Lord, whose name was called Jesus, who is the Savior. Now, I don't think it's very wise for us to say Mary, the mother of God. I think it's just way too confusing. Uh, That whole concept was hijacked a long time ago by the Roman Catholic Church. So I think we need to leave it alone. I don't think we need to try to try to bring it back to its original intent, the the reason it was originally said. I just think we need to say she was the mother of the God man. The God man was conceived in her. Mary was God's chosen vessel, favored among women, as we have read, in whom the eternal God in the person of the Son united with humanity and was brought forth into this sin-cursed world. So as you read the record of the life of Jesus, wouldn't you say that it's very apparent that he's a man? No? I mean... All you have to do is read the record. It's very... In fact, you don't find anybody really saying, well, there's somebody that's not a man. You know, that, that in, in, in the normal, regular life. He didn't stand out. In fact, Isaiah talks about that, right? In Isaiah 53. I mean, there was nothing about him that really, in his physical appearance, that, that, that recommended him to the crowds. It's also apparent, especially as he speaks with his father, that he's God. Now, we cannot fully understand or explain the paradoxes. Do you know what a paradox is? I've got a definition here. A tenet or proposition contrary to received opinion or seemingly absurd yet true in fact. That's a paradox, not a contradiction. Contradiction is not the same thing as par- contradiction is a contradiction. It's, it's they, 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 they don't exist together. They can't. But a paradox is something that's true. It's real. But it doesn't seem like it is so. It doesn't seem apparent that it is so. Little is much. What? That's a paradox. When God's in it. Little is much. The least are the greatest. We've already seen that in Jesus' teaching. It's a paradox. The first shall be last. Or how about a more common one, bittersweet, we use that language. It's a a paradox. But it makes sense if it can be explained. At least it makes sense as much as our minds can Handle it. And I say that in reference to our subject this morning. We cannot fully understand or explain the paradoxes presented to our minds. How can one person be creator and created? You understand what we're saying here? 
one person. And it's because of these paradoxes that heretical teaching has, has entered in because people are trying to make sense of it. How can one person be infinite and finite? How can one person be all-knowing and yet learning? Oh, no one knows that, not even the Son, but my Father, which is in heaven. Wait, wait a minute. Did you just say that? How can one person be immortal and mortal? How can one person be omnipresent and yet confined to space and time? Do you see the paradoxes we're dealing with? What we must not do is invent models that make sense to us, but are a contradiction to revelation. Jesus Christ is not two persons. He is not a split personality. He is one. There is no record of his human nature interacting with his divine nature. You don't see that in the scriptures. Because they're not two persons. It's one person with these two natures that are, that are brought together. The unique working of the Holy Spirit bringing these natures together inseparably joined together and yet distinct natures. He never used plural pronouns referring to himself. It's interesting. Now, you do have plural pronouns in reference to the Trinity. Thought about that? Why is that? There's three persons. But you don't have that in Jesus because they're not two persons. There's one. It's me. It's I. Two natures. When he spoke about or to his father. The son who took on flesh is the one who was speaking. Do you hear me? The son, the eternal son who took on flesh is the one who is communicating, who is speaking to his father. My God, my God. Or even before that, if there's any way this could be avoided. Or looking up into heaven, lifting his eyes and saying, Father, the one who is speaking is this person, God-man. From conception in Mary, the Son of God is God-man. In fact, I've come to the place where I probably will not refer to him as God and man. Because that seems to indicate that there's two different entities here, two different persons here. There's not. And so I choose. And I understand what people mean by God and man. At least I think I do. I hope they do mean this. But I think it may be better, at least for my mind, it helps me to say God-man. Not God and man, as if sometimes he's one and sometimes he's another. That's how some people explain the Gospels. Well, well, you know, here he's, here he's speaking in his, in his God. You know, as, here he's speaking as man. 
No, he's always speaking as God-man. There's only one person with two distinct united natures. And so what may be confusing to our minds must not be rejected or altered to fit our minds. And brethren, I'm, I'm telling you, there are some difficulties here. I said I wasn't going to go into these things, and I'm not going to. But I will propose to you that if this is not so, we have a problem. God was not born, but the God-man was. God cannot grow and learn, but the God-man did. God cannot suffer. In this sense, He is impassable. For those who know some fancy words, you'll know what I mean by that. There's this, this passion of sorrow and hurting and suffering. and Although that, to me, is a debated point and I'm not going there. I shouldn't have even brought it up. Please, those of you who are going there, back up, okay? My fault. God cannot suffer, not in the sense that we're talking about here, but the God-man did. God cannot die, but the God-man did. Insert. There are some who indicate that at some point, the divine nature must have separated from the human nature because God wasn't on the cross. And I'm telling you, He was. God the Son was there. The blood of God was shed. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all. Sin. But of course, God can't die. But the God-man can and did. Man cannot forgive sins, but the God-man did. Man cannot walk on water, but the God-man did. Man cannot rise from the dead, but the God-man did. There's tension here. But we must allow the tension to remain rather than err in an attempt to explain. And so when you think of Jesus Christ, think God, man. Let me just, I just want to read with a comment. Just, I'm not going to go into it because it's a difficult passage, but Philippians chapter 2, which may help us in our explanation. Let this mind, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, He was the essence of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I know, I know there's various translations there because it's not a, sim- a simple Greek to translate. But that's a good translation and there are others also a representative of good translation. But I think the idea... Here, when he says being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't. Jesus was not. It wasn't something he was having to prove or demonstrate. He knew who he was. 
But, and this is the contrast, made himself of no reputation, or as some translations go, emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And so what I see the Apostle Paul saying there is that is that Christ Jesus willingly chose in his incarnation to not live with unveiled display of his divine nature. Remember what he said. I, 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 he, in John 17, 5, he was looking forward to returning to the glory which I had with you before the world began. There was something in his incarnate state before his resurrection and return to glory that there was a availing, even though there was a revealing. He humbly submitted himself to the limitations of his human nature. You don't find him when he was engaging with people. Yes, there were times where he obviously he knew what they were thinking, but not on every occasion. And so he didn't always exercise the divine nature. But he did not lay aside his attributes. Those who say, you know, emptied of emptied himself of all but love. I don't know what Charles Wesley exactly meant by that phrase, but I don't agree with it. If by that it is meant that he that he laid aside all that he was, all of his attributes. I don't know exactly what Wesley meant by that. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we've doctored that one up and said he emptied himself in matchless love. But he was always dependent and never separating himself from full communion with the Father and the Spirit. In his lifetime, here upon this earth, he was never independent. He did what he did as one person, Jesus Christ, in full communion and interdependence with the Father and the Son and with full submission to His Father and the Spirit, whom we may next week look at a little bit more, who was always with Him. He was full of the Spirit. The Spirit led Him. You know, He lived His life under the guidance, the leadership, the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ Jesus. This is, the, this is Christ the Lord. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, first of all, it's in the face of the incarnate Christ that we most fully see who God is. Is that true? In the face of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would venture to say when the prayers prayed, may your face shine upon us. There is at least at least a veiled reference, if not a direct reference, to the glory of Christ shining in that expression. Because He is the face. The incarnate Christ is the one in whom we most fully see who God is. 
You see, what we know of our God in Jesus is unlike any other God. This popped out to me when I was reading Daniel chapter 2 recently. I was reading Daniel, but if you're going to read Daniel, you're going to read Daniel chapter 2. And so, Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, you know, the, the Chaldeans, he says to them, I had a dream. Well, tell us the dream and we'll, we'll interpret it. He said, no, you tell me the dream. And they said, well, that's crazy. And no one's ever heard of such a thing. Talking about dreams, brother. Well, look at Daniel. Well, let me read it to you. Daniel chapter 2. Here's what they said to him. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other one who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Our God is different. Jehovah Yahweh, the ever-living one, is different. It is true. The gods don't dwell with flesh. The gods are up there demanding. God came down. Our God came down. He is love incarnate. He really is. And I know we're living in a generation where we almost hesitate to use certain languages because of how it's abused. But brethren, let's not allow the abusers to destroy the realities, the truths, the glories. Satan would love nothing more than to distract us from the glories that are to be seen in the incarnate Son God demonstrated our God, not the gods, our God demonstrated in the incarnation that his purpose was and always was reconciliation. You know Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Are we engaged in this ministry of reconciliation? Now this is, this in the context is speaking of the declaration of this reconciliation. He goes on to say that is, he, he, he describes it, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I just tack on this parenthetical thought. If you really grasp this, this concept of reconciliation that, they, that we see in the revelation of God in the incarnation, and you've experienced this reconciliation, how can you not be reconciled with a brother or sister in Christ? That's the manifestation. That's the outworking of that which has been placed within you. His life and death for sinners was God setting forth His love most clearly. Now, if 
the incarnation is not true. The word would still be the son of God. That can't change. But not the Lamb of God. You hear that? If the incarnation is not true, the word would still be the Son of God, but not the Lamb of God. He could not have been the sinner substitute. He could not have been the propitiation for our sins. He could not have been the Savior of the world. Simply appearing in this world was not sufficient to reconcile sinners to himself. As we've already said, he appeared in the Old Testament. There were appearances already. But lambs were still being slain, right? A sacrificial system. High priests who had to shed their blood, shed blood for themselves and then for the sins of the people. That was all going on. I want to read to you a familiar passage. And I want you to hear it in light of what we've been saying about the incarnation. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 through 17. I'm saying to you that simply appearing in this world was not sufficient to reconcile sinners to Himself. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared the same. That through death He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. You remember what John said in 1 John chapter 3. Is it verse 8 or 18? For this purpose, He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. That's, That's a purpose statement. But I'm telling you, why couldn't he have destroyed the works of the devil just by being God? Eternally God? He had to come into the world? Now, there may be many answers to that question. I'm just posing it, just kind of popped into my head. But, you know, but he had to come into the world. It wasn't just a, an act of power, even an act of powerful love. No, that powerful love came down. And he was to destroy the works of the devil in relationship to his people, you see. And the only way to do that was to be joined with his people. And to take on that enemy who was an enemy of his people. To destroy that enemy, you see. And death over which he had the power. And he did that by becoming one of us without sin. Verse 15, to release those. See, that's the point. It's not just some idea here. It's a, something that, to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject 
to bondage. I, I love, so you mentioned Jim earlier. And, uh, Jim, I hope you're listening here. But, you know, I, I, uh, brother mentioned earlier. I mean, when you talk to Jim, he's not afraid to die. He told me the health workers came this last week and y'all were talking about that. We're prepared. We're ready. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels or he does not take on the nature of angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And this aid that the translation here says is by way of taking on the nature. By the way, in the old King James, nature is in italics. It's, it's, it's inserted by the translators. But that isn't the idea. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made. Did you hear that? He had to be made. Like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. Brethren, here is love. This is what provoked John Wesley to say what he said in that poetic way. And by the way, Charles Wesley has an amazing set of hymns on the Trinity. Including what we're talking about here. But you know, we sing it, we'll probably close with it. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's His mystery all. It's mind-boggling. But it ought to the more we understand of it, and I, I know we don't all understand it at the same level, we're continuing to grow, but the more we understand of it, the more it ought to affect us, you see. This is the only way that sinful man could be delivered from the wrath to come and have communion restored that we lost in Adam. You know the first Adam. Man had communion with God. God walked with him in the cool of the day. Lost that. Salvation is about a lot of things. And by the way, sometimes all of us can get focused on one aspect of salvation to the neglect of other aspects of salvation. But this is a fundamental aspect of it is the restoration of that communion with God. I would say that's an ultimate. And how's that going to be done? Only if God is united with man. Able to live. Able to die. Able to rise. Able to intercede forever. He ever lives. The eternal Son had to become the last Adam. Interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 45. Not only to become the first the first Adam was a living soul. What's the last Adam? A quickening, life-giving spirit. You see, the last Adam is greater than the first Adam. The last Adam, being raised from the dead, is a life-giving spirit. The first Adam died. And had no life-giving spirit. 
Now, there are depths to that. But, but go as deep as you can with it. But don't, don't reject it. Even if you don't fully understand it. He alone was qualified to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices for sin. And to bring believing sinners like you and me with Him into glory. The glory of His Father as adopted children. Not sons like He is the only begotten Son. But sons like Him. In Him. With Him. Adopted. His humanity made his sacrifice possible. His deity made it effectual to bring us to God. His humanity made his sacrifice possible. God can't die. His deity made it effectual. To bring us to God. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. And then one final thought. Because the incarnation is true. We have a sympathetic Savior and High Priest. Hallelujah. And isn't that really what Hebrews 4 is saying? It was actually in the. Verse 18 of chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, our infirmities. Would you remember a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I kind of spoke on this idea of bearing our infirmities. But was in all points tempted as we are. God, man. God cannot be tempted to sin. Well, how can the Son of God be tempted to sin then? He's united with humanity. God, man. In all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you can debate all you want about the Peccability and impeccability. I'll tell you this. He did not sin. There was no sin in Him. There never was any sin in Him. And I would go so far as to say, there could be no sin in Him. But He really was tempted. This is why He can sympathize with us. I was having a tough, tough, tough morning one morning. And I felt like I was going crazy. I know I'm being transparent here. Y'all might want to say, I don't want you preaching again. And in that moment, because of these realities, because of these things that I've been dwelling upon, I looked up to Jesus and I said, Jesus, I don't know what you were going through in the garden. I know what I read. But if you can identify with me at all right now, help me. Help me. Isn't that what let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need? And I went on to have a good day. 
He helped me. You see, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, He did not take the easy way out untouched by human suffering. Dear tried and suffering child of God, He feels your pain. He feels your infirmity. He fe- even if you are sinning, There is no born-again child of God that is sinning and gloating in it. But there are plenty of children of God who struggle with sin. And He feels for you. His heart is for you. I've been affected by some things I've listened to recently. His heart is for you more than you know. The one conceived in the virgin womb. In the virgin's womb. That one who was conceived. And this is where I started out. This is where we end. That one conceived in the virgin's womb is the one who lived. The same one. Lived. Died. Arose. And in a... This takes a little bit more time. To, we're not going to talk about it. But in this, in this fully glorified state where he is now. Intercedes today with a heart of loving compassion that I would argue exceeds even what those that he knew on earth in the flesh experienced. And this, by the way, is for all who come to God through him. Dear sinner, I hope there's a sin of burden under the weight of your sin here today. You don't need to stay there. But if you're burdened under the guilt of your sin, you actually see that it, it's a problem. Because of the incarnation and all that followed, Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. There is peace with God through Him. And I just... I, as an ambassador of Christ, I, I stand here today and I implore you, turn to Him. Be reconciled to God. Believe. And you will know Him. And you will continue to know Him. And you will grow in your knowledge of Him. And you will have eternal life. And brethren in Christ, if the angels at the sight of His birth, shouted glory to God in the highest. He didn't come for angels. How much more we who know Him and have been given the spirit of adoption. We're in His family. Nothing can separate us from His great love. Oh, receive Him afresh today. You say, well, I already got that taken care of. Twenty years ago, I was in a revival. No. Now receive Him. Afresh. Today. That's the life. 